Well, uh, I think we'll get started. Welcome, everybody. And um, Well, what I want to do this, mor- this morning is really focus on Genesis 32, but just uh, to do a brief summary of Genesis 31. It's, it's uh, part of 30 and 31. It's very complicated, a lot of, of detail, and some things I'm not sure we need to spend a great deal of time on. Perhaps I can just make this comment, because I really want to focus on chapter 32. But um, Genesis 31 is where uh, Jacob and Laban, remember that's his... No, we haven't. That's right. We're basically going to summarize it in five minutes and we're going to get into 32. Okay, but while you're doing that summary, if you could explain how that speckled and spotted sheep and all that that thing works. Well, that's what I was going to try to avoid. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's... um, Oh, I was going to summarize it, Woody, and if the summary isn't adequate, let me know, okay? Um, Laban, as you know, Laban is Jacob's uncle, and Jacob has been with him now for 14 years, right? Seven years in order to get his, he thought he was marrying Rachel, but he woke up the next morning, it was Leah, (laughs) And then an additional seven years to honor the commitment to Laban to be able to marry Rachel. Now, he married Rachel almost as soon as he married Leah, but in order to form, he had a worker. So it's 14 years. And he, God speaks to him, that is to Jacob, and in effect gives him the direction, you need to start preparing to go back to your people. In other words, go back to, to Beersheba, to go back to Israel. And he informs Laban of this, and and Laban says, well, um, divination has explained to me that the reason I have been so blessed is because you have been with me. In other words, Jacob, and that is accurate, and he acknowledges that and so on, but Jacob insists, I am still going to leave. And Laban says, okay, what are the wages I need to pay you? And so the, 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 the context of that, as J- Jacob then responds, is I'm going to take the animals in your respective herds that are the defective ones, the ones that you would not normally pick out, the spotted ones and the black ones and so on. And I'm going to go through and I'm going to pick them out and so on. And Laban, uh, in his typical conniving, manipulative way, um, separates all of his flocks and goes three days away so he, that is Jacob, is not going to be able to get all that he wants. And so then Jacob uses, it's a little bit like the mandrakes of a couple of earlier chapters. He uses what was an old-fashioned folk tale way of trying to control the um, inbreeding of the animals. And so you have this, this stick with the spotted and all the different things. And what's clear in all of this is that God is superintending all this. It isn't this folkway method. It's God is superintending all this so that the end result, despite all of the deceptive and conniving ways of Laban, is that Jacob is going to leave Padam Aran, a very rich man with very significant flocks of animals, camels, as well as the goats and the sheep and so on. And the point of the chapter is God is controlling this. And so at the end of the section, Laban recognizes that. And I guess you could say the way we might say it, you can't fight God. And so he recognizes this, 
And they form a treaty. They form a covenant. And it's the very famous one of Mizpah. And may the Lord be between us as we go our separate way. And it's the Lord who is the witness to this treaty, this covenant. And that's how, in effect, the chapter ends. And then Jacob um, and, and, uh, and Laban put a little stone monument to recognize and acknowledge the treaty. And Laban says goodbye to his children, his two daughters, and all of his grandchildren. And uh, Jacob and his family, remember, he's got Leah and Rachel, 11 boys and one girl. Benjamin hasn't been born yet. And all of his flocks. And so, I mean, this this would have been a very significant movement of people and animals, etc., as he leaves, that is, Jacob leaves, and heads back home. So the total number of years from he worked 14 for Leah, seven for Leah, seven for Rachel, is another six years. So he had been with Laban for 20 years, a total. And so now he's leaving with uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of animals, probably several thousand, as well as his large family. So this is plus servants. So that's a very, very significant caravan of people, if you want to put it that way, of both goods, animals, and, and Jacob leaves Padam Aram a very rich man in terms of the animals and, and flocks. So in essence, that's chapter 31. I just thought we'd summarize that and spend what is really significant in chapter 32. It was very good. Um, there was one more thing. I Absolutely, please. The idols that... Okay. Yes. Well, you you've read the chapter, Woody, and that's really good. That's why I'm asking. Yeah. No, that's good. Okay. Well, Rachel obviously does something that um, it's somewhat of a mystery why she does that, but she takes uh, one of the household idols or household images. So, a word idol would be the the correct. It's teraphim is the Greek is the Hebrew word actually, but it was a it was a family idol. It would what it looked like, what its image was. It the text doesn't make clear, but it was a family idol. Now, that gives you a little indication, too, of the nature of Laban's faith. I mean, Laban uh, is mixing whatever faith in the one true God he has with the kinds of things that were very typical in the ancient world. Now, the qu- question the Bible doesn't answer this either. Why does Rachel do that? Why does she take that and hide it? Um, is is It's probably a residue of the, the, the way in which she, she had been brought up. I don't want Laban to take avenge. I don't want Laban, I don't want him to avenge us leaving, so I'm, I'm just going to take this as a way of protecting us, which, of course, is, is, uh, is not something she should have done. But there is a very interesting point. As Laban then discovers that she's lost that he's lost this idol, pursues them, and finally catches up with them. I think it was like three days, catches up with them, and, and just very boldly and audaciously starts searching everything. And uh, Rachel and others resent that, and, and this is what's really interesting. She has, she has this idol, this little statue, this, this family uh, idol thing, uh, in her bag on the camel, and she's sitting on it. And she is going through her monthly cycle of menstruation. And so she says, um, I am 
uh, you know, the word isn't menstruating, but that's really what it is. And it's really interesting because she's sitting on this idol. And it's, it is a polemic, really, against the idolatry of Laban's family. And it's being defiled by menstrual blood. I mean, it's, there's, just, there's a lot of symbolism there that's quite significant, to be honest with you. But it, it drives us back to this, this central question, which we, the Bible doesn't answer, why did she take it? But um, she did, and the polemic against those idols, that idol in this case, is that she is sitting on it and she's menstruating. And the menstrual blood defiles the idol, which shows its impotence, its worthlessness, and that's, in a sense, the point. So, yeah, no, thank you. I'm Man, I wish all of my students read the chapters I assigned them so thoroughly. <laughs> so, chapter, yes, Fred. How many miles now will we travel? Well, it's about to get back to Beersheba. It's 550 miles, approximately. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, you know. That's, that's like from here to South Bend, Indiana, uh, I couldn't tell you that, but it would be like crossing the state of Nebraska and about 100 miles into Wyoming. Yeah. Or going across Iowa and, you know, somewhere we get to them. Chapter 32. I really want to focus on this. This is a, in many ways, this is one of the most important chapters in the book of Exodus in terms of God's dealing with people. It's very personal. And it, it shows us how God now finally deals with the character flaw of Jacob. Jacob is, you know this from everything we've discussed, Jacob is a conniving man. His name means heel catcher. As he's coming out of, of his mother's womb, he's got a hold of Esau, who's technically the firstborn. He's got a hold of his heel and he will manipulate and connive and deceive to get his way. And he is out-connived and out-deceived. Out-connived is a word, but he's out-connived and out-deceived by Laban, his uncle. But he still senses, as he testifies to his two wives, Leah and Rachel, and says, we're, we're leaving. And he explains to them why, how God has blessed, how God has honored. But now Jacob is about to enter the promised land. They're going to go down along the Jordan, and about halfway between, and you can look at your map if you want to see it, halfway between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea is where they're going to cross into Israel. And get in, go, they're going to cross the Jordan River, a little place called Jabbok. Question. If you're Jacob, it's been 20 years, and you're headed back home, what's on your mind? Brother. Your brother. Esau. You know he was angry. Yes, I mean, you. even though it's 20 years, remember one of the reasons he fled and why Rebecca organized the, the, the flight for him to go back to her hometown and all of that was Esau has vowed to kill you. So he has to still be thinking that. Yeah, 20 years, I doubt that Esau's forgotten this. And so that's the context. And so as we, as we start reading chapter 32, he is honoring the command that God has given him. Go back to your home. He's going to do that. He has seen and witnessed God's remarkable blessing in his life, both in terms of protecting and providing for him, as well as blessing him with the phenomenal 
herds of animals, plus he has 11 children. Excuse me, really, 12, 11 boys and a girl, Dinah. Uh, Benjamin will be born in just a little bit. So he is just the evidence of God's blessing throughout his life. But still, there's the fear of Esau. So we read in verse 1, Now Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. Now this should remind you a little bit of when he was headed to Patamaram as he's running. Remember, he stops at Bethel and has that vision of the steps or stairs, however you interpret that, and the angels going up and down and so on. So it's, it's probably we're to think of the same thing. He's going back, but the angels of God meet him, and Jacob said, this is God's camp. So he named the place Mahanaim, place of two camps. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, in the country of Edom. Now, let's, let me stop for just a minute. So two things have gone. Number one, he, he and if you, and I don't know, you may not be able to, to look at it, but he's down, he's going, he's going down along the Jordan River, and he's right about where Shechem is in your map, except he's on this side, he's on the east side, approximately where Shechem is. And so he's on the east side, he stops, and these angels meet him. What's, what is that all about? There's no, there's no specific content of conversation, it's just God's reminding him, I'm with you. I'm with you. And so on the east side of the Jordan River, this little camp, he just gives it a name, as so often happened, the Mahanaim, the place of two camps, my camp, God's camp. And so now he's, he's again, he's thinking. So he sends messengers. Go to Esau. Go to Seir. Esau is settled now in the south. Remember, he goes to Edom south of, of Beersheba. So he's settled there. Verse 4, and he commanded them, saying, Thus shall you say to my brother, uh, to the uh, Lord uh, uh, Esau, Thus your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban, stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and males and female servants. I have sent them to tell my Lord that I might find favor in your sight. So that's a message of reconciliation, a message I'm coming back. A message, I'm looking forward to seeing you, quote, unquote. <laughs> and I have lots of animals. And he's going, he's going to give, he's going to send a significant number of these animals on ahead to, to Esau. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we've come to your brother Esau. Furthermore, he's coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. Now, if you're Jacob and you're on the east side of the Jordan River, you've sent your messengers ahead and you've sent some animals with them and now they come back and they tell you, Esau's coming to meet you and he's got 400 men with him. What's your thought? Oh my, great, a welcoming party. I doubt that's what he's thinking. So the next verse is the point. Jacob is greatly afraid. And distressed. He has no idea what Esau's response is going to be, but when he's got 400 men with him, he's not processing that in a positive way. So the text says he's afraid and he's distressed. And he divided the people who were with him. Now that would be his two wives, his children, plus all of his servants, and the flocks and herds and camels into two companies. And said, if Esau comes to the one and attacks it, 
then the company which is left will escape. So he's, he's I mean, when divide, I mean, he separates them significantly into two groups. Esau can't attack both of them. So one he'll attack, the other one will be preserved. Kind of a dismal way of looking at things. Esau, in verse 9, and O God, is now praise. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. That's very, very important because he is again evoking the covenant nature of God. God made a covenant promise to Abraham, his grandfather, a covenant promise to his father. It's the same promise, but he reiterates it. So he's addressing God on the basis of this covenant relationship. It's almost like he's saying, Lord, you've made a lot of promises, and I'm banking on these promises. Oh, you Lord, and and the, the name there is Yahweh, who did say to... Excuse me. I want to turn this off because the person doesn't know I'm not available. <clears throat> o Lord, who did say to me, return to your country and your relatives and I will prosper you. Now that, just a review, what God had said, what God had promised, verse 10, I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan. Now I've become two companies. I've divided them. Now, verse 9, a reminder of the covenant relationship. Verse 10, an amazing evidence of humility, possibly generated by fear, but it's nonetheless humility. I draw your attention. We've done this before, but I draw your attention to the importance of that word in verse 10, unworthy of all your loving kindness. That's chesed. Remember we talked about that before? That's chesed, H-E-S-E-D in Hebrew. If I had a board, I'd write it up on the board. It's one of the most important words in the whole Old Testament, 39 books of the Old Testament. Every book has that word. It's God's covenant faithfulness, covenant loyalty. I'm unworthy of that. And the faithfulness which you've shown me. Now verse 10 is the review of his humility. Verse 11 is his prayer. Deliver me. Now, I don't know, I don't know how your Bible's laid out, so you, you may not be able to do this, but if you just for a moment, I want to show you how important this is. The word deliver in verse 11, I'm reading from the New American Standard this morning. The word to translate deliver, I want your eye to go all the way over to verse 30. Again, in the New American Standard, which is what I'm reading for, I've seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. That's exactly the same word. It's the same Hebrew word. His prayer is deliver me. Verse 30, my life has been preserved. You could translate that, my life has been delivered. That's how God answers the prayer. So, He prays out of fear, out of concern, out of consternation, whatever word you want to use. But in verse 30, as he's about to enter the promised land, God's answered the prayer. So just keep, that's like like the bookends of this very important narrative. The prayer, deliver me. Verse 30, you preserved me. You've delivered me. Same Hebrew word. So just keep that as we start 
Now really digging into this. Verse 11, again, deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mothers with the children. Okay, now you have here that reliance and dependence on God, deliver me, but the very human, understandable emotion of fear. 20 years has not neutralized the fear. Esau promised, as I'm running away, he's going to kill me. Now, I'm going back in obedience to your command, Lord, and you blessed me. Your covenant loyalty to me is without question. But Lord, Lord, 400 of Esau's men are waiting for me on the other side of the Jordan River. So this is a natural, understandable, emotional, but reasonable prayer. It's not that God isn't interested in this. So you you have to understand the context into which he is about to cross into the promised land, and God is going to break him. I've preached chapter 32, and I call this God breaking Jacob. This is where Jacob is broken. And you will see symbolically as well as literally what happens to him in this remarkable chapter. So Jacob is following God's command Correct. to return. But unbeknownst to Jacob, Esau is coming. How did Esau know to come? Well, I think, I, I think this, uh, it, it, what it's stated here in verse, um, where is that? Verse 6. I think this is in response to the messengers that Jacob had sent. Remember, he, Jacob had sent messengers deep down into Edom um, that, you know, I'm returning. He sent him some animals as a gift. Now Esau is, is responding and coming to so, meet him. So Esau didn't have any, any uh, idea from, uh, I, or, or I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think there's any, um, at least there's nothing in the, maybe, I, I don't know for sure, but okay. at least in terms of what the text is saying, it seems as if he is coming now to meet him, that is Jacob, because the messengers had alerted him, that is Esau, that he's coming back. And so, um, and and it is, it is a mysterious fact of the narrative that he's got 400 men with him. Yeah. I mean, no matter how you look at it, if I'm Jacob, I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. <laughs> they, I mean, I'm in trouble, and my family's in trouble, and everything that I regard as important in this life is now in jeopardy. And that's why he prays this. That's why verse 11, is, it's a very clear prayer. Deliver me. <laughs> Fred. Uh, don't you think that this is reality that each one of us could relate to? Oh. At least Oh, absolutely. Phases of my life and, and so forth where uh, maybe I have unconfessed sin, maybe I have uh, no, I went right, I should have gone left or something like that. And I thought maybe I could sneak that by God. And, and finally it, it's caught up and, and just contrition and say, you know, I'm, I'm falling on your mercy here. I confess of course. sins unto you, Absolutely. and I want to be restored to you. Yeah. So please restore me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think another dimension of this with Jacob is you see 
and there's nobody around this table that doesn't understand this, why in verse 11, why fear is a reasonably understandable emotion that he's feeling. I mean, this, that doesn't mean he's not, he doesn't have faith. I mean, he just reviewed the incredible faithfulness of God to him and that he is, he is obeying God's command to go back. But, he's, but he is mixing, is that the right word I want to use? You see the, the uh, dynamic of the fear with also the prayer independence because he wrote, there is no one else that can deliver me what you got. In a reminder to God, that you said. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just really, that's why this, why I love chapter 32, because it's such a, it's a, it's such a real life. Every one of us in this room can identify with what's going through Jacob's mind. Yes, God, you've blessed me, been faithful to me for 20 years. You've taken care of me. You've blessed me. You've done exactly what you said you would do. But now you tell me to go back and Lord, I'm going back. And I, I trust you. Your loving kindness is real. Your faith, but we're, Jake, I'm Jacob, and he stalls right over. You know, it's just that we understand that. But then again, you look at what he does. He prays to the Lord, deliver me. There's no other human being. There's no other circumstance. There's no, Lord, you have to take care of me. You have promised. You, you've said it. You've been faithful, but deliver me because I am afraid. So, so and, you, take, you take Jacob's context in before Christ, hmm. and you take our situation after Christ, and we should give thanks that God will do this. That's right. That's right. Yep. We, we need to thank God that, that the power is there to do what He's what He's going to do for yeah. us, and, yeah. and not and we should we should draw strength from that rather than than to to, uh, to shirk from it. I think. Well, I'm always reminded when things like this because I quote this a lot in First Corinthians 10. Paul says. I'm going to paraphrase, but yeah. study the Old Testament, study the narrative, study the stories, and learn from them. Yeah. They're an example. And here's a, here's a great example. They're for teaching. Yeah, I mean, they really are. I mean, this is real-life narrative stuff. It really happened, and we can blessed that we can study it and learn from it. Yeah. Jacob Jacob is you and, he's, and, and is I. I mean, every one of us, I mean, not the specific, but every one of us has been in situations like this, and we will be in more situations like this, where the realities of, of, of human life and, and living in fallen, broken situations, where we're not going to cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, you've been faithful to me, I trust you, I'm doing what you want me to do, but I'm afraid, Lord. <laughs> and, you know, to then just roll yourself onto him and let him do what he promised he would do. Like you said, there was no other place to get no. help. He had no. to get it from God. Yeah. And, you know, that reminds me that 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 God is the answer. We, yes. we may just work like heck trying to figure something out yeah. or how we're going to escape from something, but, yeah. you know, where it really comes down to is God. Yes, dependence on the Lord and reliance Amen. on the Lord, even when we're genuinely afraid or uncertain or... Whatever. Carol. It's interesting the different response that Jacob had to this dilemma mm. as compared to his grandfather Abraham mm. when he was told to offer his Isaac, his, Isaac. who was his father. Yeah. There's no, as I recall, there's, there's really no dialogue there about God, why are you, you remember God, you. you, 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 you know, <laughs> yeah. He just does it, he just he obeys. Just, he just obeys. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I think there's no question uh, Abraham's faith is much deeper, much more mature than Jacob's. I know you're right. But Jacob's character flaw, which we've been developing over these months, uh, it seems like months, maybe it's only been weeks, but anyway, we've been in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. With Jacob here, that his character flaw is this deceptive, duplicitous, conniving temperament. It's got him, it's got him into a lot of trouble. Now he must deal with it. God, in effect, God is saying, and this, this is why I think this is all a part of God's plan for Jacob. I am now going to break you of this. And that's why this is such a powerful chapter. Rob, did you have your hand up or do you something? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah. Thinking of John Wayne's definition of courage, being scared to death and saddling up anyway. <laughs> and where, you know. That's sort of biblical me. in a way. <laughs> no, I mean, it, you know, I, I'm being facetious well, here, but it, it is. This chapter underlines that, and it yeah. makes us realize where the source of that courage is. Well, that, that's true. That's true. Not afraid. No. And it's how you deal. The, the fear is an emotion. God created us as emotional people. But what do we do with the fear? You roll it onto the Lord. And, and I mean, if you don't, then you'll be so uh, almost enslaved and overwhelmed by the fear that it could be incapacitating. And that's not what the Lord wants us to do. So let's continue now, verse 12. So thou, this is Jacob still praying. For thou say, I will surely prosper you, make your descendants the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Okay, what is he doing? He's just reminding God of the covenant. Not that God needs to be reminded, but in the sense of just reviewing, God, this is part of the promise. So if you wipe me out and wipe all my family out, how are you going to fulfill that? So, I mean, it's not, it's not that this is wrong. It's just reviewing. God, you promised us. And that builds faith. I, tell, I told my children this. I've, I've done it in pastoral counseling. Review the faithfulness of God to you in your life. That's, that's a, and, and tell him that. Review the faithfulness of God and tell him that. Lord, you were faithful here, here, here. And Lord, you need to do it again. <laughs> You know, I mean, I'm in a situation, whatever that m- might be, and that's 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 very biblical. Throughout the Old Testament, they do this again and again. They start with God creating, and then they start with the Exodus, how God delivered them, and then he starts with the you know, What are they doing? They're just reviewing the faithfulness of God. Okay, Lord, you got to do it again. So I might be a little cynical when I listen to that. I'm saying, well, who's that for, God or me? Why am I... Well, first of all, remember that prayer is a dialogue between two people who love one another. So all you're doing is you're talking to the Lord, and he invites that. You're talking to the Lord and just reviewing with him, Lord, you have been faithful to me. And, I mean, it is God delights in us doing it, it seems to me, or it wouldn't be all over the scriptures. But it is for our own personal enrichment of our faith because God has been faithful in the past. I know he will be faithful to me in the and present. If he is the, if, if he's the source of our courage, wouldn't he give us a mechanism to increase our courage? Yes. Which is used in the context of life, the stresses and trains of life, and our need to be dependent on him and draw on the faith and courage that he will give us as we pray about. And until we go to be with him, that's the way it's going to be. You get through one crisis, don't think there aren't going to be any others. I mean, I don't mean to 
be doom and gloom. It's just a reality. But we have a whole different set of resources with which to deal with these. You know, uh, this sounds kind of funny, but um, we were um, we were at our lake place, and uh, <coughs> the sun was setting, and it was just just beautiful. And I, you know, and I would say, I said to Cap, "Isn't this just terrific?" But then I just thought, "Why don't I tell God this?" Mm. Mm. And I told God. Good, that. absolutely. And it just seemed like He mm. just. Started creating, yeah. yeah. It was like it was amazing. Yeah. It just went on for I don't know, you know, maybe 10 minutes. And I just continued to pray yeah. and thank him. Yeah. And I've, ne I've never done that before because we acknowledge nature and all that, but just to thank him for that particular scene mm -hmm. and what he was doing. Yeah. And it just it was such a blessing to yeah. thank him. Yes, thank you for preserving us while we're having here. <laughs> no, you're, you're right. No, that's good. That's good. Uh, uh, it reminds me of something that's in, Ezekiel, in uh, uh, Genesis 5 about Enoch. Remember Enoch? It says Enoch walked with God and God took him. And that is in that chapter where everyone that's mentioned, and he died, mentions how long they lived, did this, and he died, and he died, but not Enoch because he walked with God. And I, I was dealing with that this morning in the um, early morning Bible class, I, Bible study I have. And we, the guys wanted to talk about that. What does that mean? What does that look like? And so we, we discussed that at some length. But to walk with God is not a momentary, fair-weather friend kind of relationship. It's a 24-7. And it's like, that's what it caused me to think of that, Fred, when you, when you said that. It's like talking to the Lord and praising the Lord and bringing the Lord and engaging the Lord and involving the Lord and everything. I mean, we can't think of him every minute of, of, of every day. That We can't. We've got lots of responsibility, but it's drawing him into everything that we do. And remembering that in every, as I try to pray when we, we close each Wednesday session, that we represent him. To represent him well, too. That everything we do and everything we say is important to the Lord. He's not a fair-weather friend. He doesn't what on us to look at that relationship in that way. And this is what Jacob is learning. I will do it God's way, not my way. Because Jacob's life has been to do it his way. He's the classic Frank Sinatra song, I did it my way. He's the classic. God is now teaching him to do it his way, capital H, God's way. And Jacob is at that point. There is no other way for Jacob than dependence on God here. His conniving, his manipulating, his duplicity is not going to get him where he wants to be with Esau. He's facing a threat. He doesn't know what else to do except turn to God. And that's where Jacob needs to be. Well, it's 25 after. There's no way we're going to finish this chapter, but it's all right. Let's get into it. Verse 13. So he spent the night there. Where? He's on Mahanaim. He's on the east side of the Jordan River. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milking cows. There were colts, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. And he delivered them into the hand of his servants everywhere, drove by himself and said, pass on before me and put a space between droves. 
So he's trying to buy Esau off. That's a terrible way to say it. If I counted correctly, that's 550 animals. And he commanded the one in front, when your brother Esau meets you and asks you, saying, to whom do you, not, do you belong and where are you going and to whom do these animals in front of you belong, you shall say, these belong to your servant Jacob. It is a present sent to my lord Esau. And behold, he is also behind us. Then he commanded the second and the third and all who followed the droves after this manner to speak to Esau when you find him. And say, Behold, your servant Jacob is behind you. I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on before him while he himself spent the night in the camp. Now, again, I don't think, don't look at this as him trying to buy the way out. I shouldn't have said it that way. This is a very understandable and reasonable thing for him to do. But the key word is appease him. So now what's going to happen? Verse 22. Now he, that would be Jacob, arose that same night, took his two wives and his two maids and his 11 children across the ford of the Jabbok. That's a little river that's almost midway between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. It crosses into the Jordan. It feeds into the Jordan. If I were able to take you to Israel tomorrow, I'd show you exactly where it is. Most of the time of the year, it's dry. But in the rainy season, it's a pretty significant um, little, little stream. And he took them, verse 23, and sent them across the stream, and he sent across whatever he had. So everything now, everything that is the evidence of God's material blessing in his life is across the Jabbok. And very significantly, Jacob was left alone. This was a protective uh, strategy on his part to protect the rest of his flocks, his wives, his children, his servants. They're all across the Jabbok, but not him. And that's very instructive. He's alone. And then the middle of verse 24, something happens. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. This is an assailant. Someone assaults him and starts to fight with him. At this point, we don't know who it is. We'll find out who it is in just a minute. And it, until daybreak. So presumably, this wrestling match goes on all night. I can't give you the exact time that it begins, but it says, until daybreak... Verse 25, and when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. Now, who is the he that touches the socket of his thigh? That's the assailant. That's the one who's fighting with Jacob. And the end result of him touching the socket of his thigh is it's dislocated him while he wrestles with Jacob. Now, I don't know if you're interested in things like this, but the term Jabok, the little stream, the term Jacob, the proper name of, of, of Jacob, and the, the verb wrestle all have exactly the three same Hebrew consonants. It's a wordplay. Do you know what I mean by consonant? You know, Hebrew is a language that doesn't have any vowels. It just have consonants. And so it's really, it's a wordplay. Jacob wrestled at Jabbok. 
It's all the same three consonants. It's a wordplay. What's happening here? Who is this assailant? Who's crippled him? Who's the one who's touched his thigh where he's crippled now? Who did all this? And why did he do it? Verse 26. Then he said, and he there is the assailant. Let me go. Dawn is breaking. He is Jacob. I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now, I would like to let your eye go over for just a minute to verse 28. I have striven with God. So whom is Jacob wrestling? Who is the assailant? God. It's God. You know, if we get real technical and get real theological, this is the second person of the Trinity. This is a theophany. Wrestling Jacob. Why? The key is in verse 27, because Jacob senses what's going on, and he wants a blessing. And so the assailant says, what is your name? God doesn't know his name. God doesn't know whom he's wrestling with. God doesn't know whom he has assaulted. Jacob. I am Jacob. The conniving one. The manipulating one. The heel catcher. The deceiver. The one who always has done things his way. Verse 28. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. That is where the title of the covenant people comes from. You see, that's why you're going to see in the rest of the Old Testament, you're going to see it. There are a number of times where we are the people of Israel. What's that mean? We're the people of Jacob. We are the descendants of Jacob. And Israel means he who strives with God. Will the people of Israel strive with God? Will the people of Israel, the children of Israel, be like Israel? Yes. Always wanting to do things their way. Always wanting to do things in their own strength, in their own... And God has to keep doing what he did to Jacob. I'm not preaching, but this is a good place to do that. Doing what he has to do with Jacob. He has to break them of that self-sufficiency and conniving and duplicity to dependence on him. So now every time a Jew reads chapter 32, they understand why are we called Israel, what's the nature of our relationship with God, and what's God trying to do? Break us of our self-sufficiency so that we can be the covenant people of God. And isn't it's hard work, if I can put it this way, you know the spirit which I'm saying, it's hard work for God, isn't it? Because the children of Israel... They have to learn every single generation to be dependent on God. Because they'll constantly, continually try to do things in their own strength. They'll always try to do things the way they want to do them. And God said, you can't. You're my covenant people. I'm not going to let you do this. And if you do not walk with me in obedience, I will discipline you. And if it keeps getting worse and worse and worse, I'm going to send you into exile for 70 years. And all of that he did. 
So I want you to see the significance. This is not only breaking Jacob of his personal character issues. It is a metaphorical example of what the relationship God will have with these covenant people. They are Israel. They strive with God. And that's the covenant name. And every time a Jew reads chapter 32, they understand the nature of their relationship with their covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And God must break them of this self-sufficiency. And that's why, for you and me, Jesus makes it possible for us to have this same kind of relationship. And every one of you around this table, if you were brutally honest, understand the problem of Jacob, because that's where every one of us is. We want to do things our way. Yes, I mean, and yet God says, okay, I'll let you do it your way, and you'll get yourself in a mess, and then you'll turn to me. I mean, that, and I don't mean to make, you know, and I mean, it is, there's humor to that, but that's the reality of it. But this is, a, this is an extremely important turning point in the narratives of the book of Genesis. Now the covenant name has been given. They're Israel. Jacob's now Israel. But that's why alternatively throughout the Old Testament, they will be called the children of Jacob or the children of Israel. You see it, this goes back and forth. Verse 29, Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob named the place Peniel. Peniel, that's obviously um, um, a Hebrew word, the face of God. For he said, I've seen God face to face, yet my life has been Preserved, And I told you, that word, I'm reading New American Standard, that's translated preserve in verse 30 is the same word that's in verse 11. Deliver me. God answers his prayer. How does he answer his prayer? By breaking Jacob of his self-sufficiency. Verse 31. The sun rose upon him as he crossed over Penuel. That's the name of the place. Limping on his thigh. So Jacob enters the promised land, how? Limping. Now that's powerful, man. That's, I mean, you can just, you know, you can just picture, he's he's limping. He can't use that socket. God's broken him of that in in a way, crippled him, if you will. The Bible doesn't explain to us. We do not know if this lasts for the rest of Jacob's life. There's nothing in the scriptures that says it didn't last for the rest of his life. But certainly, every step he took as he entered the promised land, he's reminded of what happened. I wrestled with God, and he broke me. So, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a remarkable object lesson. It's an important for the history of Israel. This is where the covenant name Israel comes from. And Jacob's entire life and everything about him represents the relationship God will have with Israel. They're always going to want to do it their way. And God's just going to have to keep breaking them of that to where they'd be dependent. They come back to him. And he blesses them and restores them. But each generation, and for you and me today, it's a different relationship because of the cross and the resurrection, but in a sense, it's the same. 
God delights. Now, I hope you understand the spirit in which I'm saying this. God delights in breaking us of our self-sufficiency. Does that sound harsh to you? I hope it doesn't. Because that, I mean, that's, when we try to do things our way, we can mess it up. And God allows us often to do it our way. So we learn that lesson and then come back to him. And he forgives, he cleanses, he restores, and says, okay, let's go on. You don't wallow in the past. Paul says, I don't look back. We don't go into the future with an eye in the rearview mirror, remembering all the past junk. No, that's not what he wants us to do. But Jacob limped into the promised land, and I don't see any reason why we couldn't assume that the rest of his life he limped, but the Bible doesn't tell us that. But every time he took a step, he's reminded, I'm a new man. My relationship with God is on a different definitional arrangement. I'm now Israel. And so it's, it's just a, it's, it's, to me, it's one of the most powerful chapters in the whole Bible, but certainly one of the most powerful in the book of Genesis. And then all 32 does, Moses just adds, this is why to this day, the children of Israel did not eat sinew of the hip, which is in the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket. That's just a tradition. It's not necessarily in the law. They just don't do that because of Jacob. So Jacob is both literally and figuratively the father of Israel, but that's where the name comes from. And I'll say this about the fourth time. Every Jew that reads this is reminded of why God calls us Israel. We strive with God. <laughs> we are the people who strive with God. So it's a, it's a very powerful chapter, isn't it? Any questions or thoughts before we leave it? Yes, please. Uh, it it yeah. seems like Jacob is always searching for the blessing. Mm. Mm. All the different characters that we've mm. we've looked at, why okay. is the Jacob is the one always asking for the Esau did? It was important to Esau too. But mm -hmm. Oh, he wants it much more than Esau does. You're right. But, That's really an interesting comment. That's right. But, Every step, mm -hmm. everywhere. Mm -hmm. Even at Bethel with this, he wants to, yes, that's, that's, that's a good. Yeah, yeah. Don't you think that's part of the character trait of Jacob, which is a good trait? Because, is, I mean, is it wrong for you and me to covet the blessing of God? You know what I mean by covet? I mean want, want the blessing of God. Yeah, that's not wrong, is it? Because the blessing of God, and I mean, I don't always think of blessing always in terms of material blessing, although that often is part of it, but it's just you want the blessing of God. You want the favor of God. You, you, you want God to be pleased with what you're doing. You're, you, you want to please your Heavenly Father, if you want to put it in New Testament language. But that's, a, that's really a good insight. I hadn't thought of it that way. But you are absolutely right. He always wants God's blessing. Even if he has to get it his way, he still wants it. <laughs> it's not necessarily just—it's not God either. It's all every personality he seems to come to. Mm. He wants the blessing. Mm. Mm. He wants but, affirmation or assurance or what's what's the drive behind? Yeah, that? I think that's a complicated a complicated uh, question to answer when you start going through all the assurance. Probably yes, assurance part of his identity. And all of that, but 
for you and me, and at least the way I think God wants us to look at it, it is not wrong for us to want the blessing of God. Sure. But the blessing of God on his terms and in his timing. That was Jacob's problem. He wanted the blessing, but I'm going to get it my way. I don't want to wait. I mean, God promised him, you are not the firstborn, but you're going to be blessed. Okay, but I can't wait. And then, especially when he's younger, who is not helping him with this? Rebecca. She is not helping him. I mean, she really isn't. But when he, his, his strong character yeah. didn't come without a struggle. That's exactly right. And this is yeah. probably the most he's ever had to struggle. That's right. But the stakes Absolutely. are very high. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's interesting, too, that the, his, his desire for a blessing, maybe the silver lining in that is that he was open to receiving that correction. At this point in his life, he really is. Absolutely. But see, he's pushed to the limit. He has nowhere else to turn but God. Because he's right across the river. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, he's, but he had to get to that point. Let's put it another way. God got him to that point. God who's superintending everything. I mean, you remember, it's 20 years. And then you go back to his conniving to get the blessings and so on. This is his life. This is the way Jacob's been all his life. Now he's finally at the point where God breaks him. It's like, it's like a watermelon dropped on a slab of concrete. That's a terrible analogy. It's probably not a good. But I mean, he really, he's broken here. And so he limps into the promised land. And I believe this. I think that's why the text says every time he takes a step, he's reminded of what God has done to him. And it's not in a negative sense. And so, um, you know, I guess maybe we'll stop because next week, then chapter 32, I'm sorry, chapter 33 is about him meeting Esau. And it's really, it's one of the most remarkable chapters that follows up because you're, you kind of leave chapter 32 thinking Esau and his 400 men, they're going to attack him and they're going to, they're going to, and God's going to have to fight for him. No, that's not what happens. It's really quite, really wonderfully beautiful what happens. So we will we will deal with thirty two uh, excuse me thirty three and then some things in chapter thirty four and renewal covenant and we're about to start Joseph. He's the other extremely important character and Joseph gets the most treatment in the book of of, uh, of Genesis. Most of the chapters and narrative chapters of the book of Genesis are devoted to Joseph, which is really Joseph's character is just in many ways, just the opposite of Jacob's. So uh, we have a lot to do, but we're going to, uh, it'll take us quite a while to get through Joseph. I want to do a lot with that character. So I hope you were blessed by chapter 32. It's one of my uh, favorite chapters in the Bible. I think it tells us because all of us can understand where Jacob was at this point in his life. Father, we're grateful for the word of God, and we thank you for the um, honesty of the Word of God. We're, we're thankful for the realities of the Word of God. It doesn't cover anything up. Nothing about Jacob's character was hidden. Everything about him, warts and all, was explicitly stated. And chapter 32 is where all of this comes together. Jacob is finally at a point in his life that he can't handle. He can't connive and and manipulate his way out of things like he did with Esau, like he did with Laban. He can't. There's nothing he can do. 
And so he cries out to you to deliver him. And it's at that point where you are ready to do your final work in Jacob's life. Break him of that character trait of self-sufficiency and conniving and duplicity and manipulation. And you cripple him so that every time he takes a step, he's reminded of his dependence on you. But that's a good thing. I know in my own life, you haven't literally crippled me, but you had to cripple me. You had to do things in my life in the early 1970s, which corrected me of so much. And Lord, I praise you for that. Every one of us in this room can testify to the times where you broke us, maybe not as elaborately or even as dramatically as Jacob, but still we had to learn that our sufficiency is in Christ. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Every one of us has to learn what that means. So that's a good thing. Thank you for the the blessing of these men, for their lives continue to work and develop and mature and grow them, and their love for you, their appreciation for everything you do, that 24-7 dependence on you, the joy even of what Fred shared about seeing the beauty of your world and praising you and thanking for that. You delight in all of those things. So in what we do and what we say for the rest of this day and this week, enable us to represent you well in Christ's name. Amen.